welcome to our assembly. It's, um, I don't know that I could um, adequately express how meaningful that uh, this morning service was for Diane and I, um, and in lieu of what uh, we're looking towards and what the what we've uh, decided to do and positioned ourselves to do. Uh, the the uh, the prayers that were led and the expressions that were made and uh, Ralph's message uh, was not only touching but it was also uh, very uh, uplifting which I think is interesting because uh, that, I, that after that service I get to talk about what I'm going to talk about tonight <laughs> uh, kind of fits, sometimes I think uh, the Lord does that to me um, the lessons are more designed for me than maybe than for you, you just get to listen in uh, but it's I think that the uh, uh, the things that are getting ready to take place uh, in Sierra Leone, uh, the things we're going to try to accomplish with God's help are very exciting. Um, Steve just keeps calling me and giving me uh, more information about more work, but that just means more opportunity, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad about that. I really am glad about that. Uh, do you remember, well, not very bright, do you remember this picture in the news a while back? Uh, uh, this was a very unique house, at least from the context of the event that that uh, uh, that, uh, that surrounded it was unique. Because this is a picture that was taken. Uh, maybe you saw it right after Hurricane Michael uh, went into the Panhandle and destroyed Mexico Beach. That uh, there se- after the dust sort of cleared, there seemed to be one house sort of sitting right in the middle of the beach that uh, uh, that didn't take all the brunt of the storm. It sort of survived, and that became a question that was addressed. Uh, in the news, maybe in several different venues, as to uh, why is this house still standing when all the rest of them are gone? And when they talked to the two gentlemen that were responsible, that owners of the house were built, uh, the unified answer came back, and that is that they built this particular house above and beyond uh, the requirements of building the house. Um, have you ever heard of uh, the, the Miami Dade County building requirements or building code? After Hurricane Andrew came through South Florida, uh, the uh, Miami-Dade County, uh, Miami-Dade County, sort of boosted the requirements uh, for building any kind of structure uh, in that area, with the idea that if they raised the standard of building, that that might be able to survive a storm, because there weren't very many places um, in South Florida that survived the winds of Andrew, uh, and so that became sort of a standard. In fact, it was even the standard by which these, this house uh, was built as well. What came to be known since the time of Andrew in terms of Florida uh, dealing with hurricanes and other things is, is pretty much the consensus uh, through both testing and through experience that not all houses were the same uh, and that the only way you could possibly foresee that a house would be able to survive a storm is if it was built to a higher standard than before. Uh, and that there were things that were uh, carefully attended to in the building of the house, in its first construction, uh, that could be done, and, and that ought to be done. And if it, even if the house had already been built, that it might very well be a good idea to go back and strengthen the house in different ways that could be done, so that when the storm did come, uh, you would be prepared. And I think that's certainly something we recognize in the physical perspective. My subject for tonight is edification. Another one of those uh, of the topics that I'm going to that we're going to explore with the Church of Priscilla Street in Sierra Leone had to do with the building up of the church. 
Now, the word edification is one of those words that we don't use a lot, I suppose, at least I don't, in, in, in uh, everyday conversation. In fact, I doubt that I've ever used this word outside the religious context in which you find it in terms of the, the discussion of the Bible. Yet, the, the concept of edification is as common to your experience and mine uh, as the house that you live in, uh, as the exercise that your doctor's telling you that you need to do with your body. It's the idea you see of strengthening something up or of building something to a point to which it is strong so that a per- something could be fortified and thereby be strong. It could be edified. The process then uh, that's involved is this very idea of building. The original word in the, in the original language, the Greek term, uh, is oikodome, which means, you see, to build, or as we mentioned here, the aspect of uh, to strengthen. And so the idea of building and the idea of strengthening uh, the word itself is used in, in a literal sense. In fact, this particular term is used to describe uh, the temple itself. In Mark chapter 13, when the disciples are going in the city of Jerusalem with Jesus, they say, uh, they say, well, look at what a beautiful building this is. And that's the word uh, you see for edification here. And that's literally what they were saying. Look at this edification. It's also used to describe, to, to describe you see, other physical buildings um, in the scriptures themselves. But most of the time when we see this word, either in the noun or the verb, it is a meta- in a metaphorical sense. And Vine's Expositary Dictionary points this out, indicating that the word edification means spiritual growth and development of ca- the character of believers by teaching or by example, suggesting such spiritual progress as the result of patient labor. So in a sense, the idea here is that you, as you build a building by putting one block on top of another. So the Christian as well is to build his character and that we're responsible for this activity not only among ourselves but of ourselves but also among ourselves from the standpoint of the church. And and the apostles when they expressed through inspiration how the Christians were to think about the church um, and, and you, put, you recognize that that's exactly what the Holy Spirit has done through the word of God is not just giving us facts, but has also revealed concepts so that we're able to take a concept itself uh, and have a pick a mind picture of what's being talked about. Uh, so though we don't in any way see uh, what the church is because it's a spiritual entity, we have an idea of what it is. It's a temple. The, the church is a body. The church is a house. Uh, the church is presented to us in terms of this communal relationship. So we talk about the household of God, a family. Uh, those concepts are familiar to us, and the Holy Spirit would, ha- would have us to know that this is the way I want you to think about the church. So the apostles encouraged think, Christians to think in these terms, um, that both as individuals and as the church, we are something that can be built up and that can be strengthened. So we recognize as we start this the idea that there's responsibility. We have a responsibility to edify other individuals. Jude writes in Jude chapter in Jude verse 20, but you beloved build yourselves up on your most holy faith praying in the Holy Spirit. So you're to build yourself up. Uh, now, that's a personal responsibility, and what Jude is presenting to me here is that I can't pass that off to somebody else. There's a sense in which other people are related to my personal responsibility to build myself up, but what Jude is saying here is that you've got to do this yourself. You have to take it on as a task that you would edify yourself or see that you are edified. We'll talk about ways that can be done. But we recognize that the authority is given for edification, both on the individual level and also on the level of the congregation. 
the level of the church, church in the local sense. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11, uh, Paul says, Therefore comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. Romans chapter 5 and verse two, 15, verse 2, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. In Romans chapter 14, verse 19, Therefore let us pursue things which make for peace, and the thing by which one may edify another. Now, those, all those passages, I think, have to do with this aspect of an individual's responsibility to edify another person. Now, they may have, and I believe they do have, uh, uh, connotations to the aspect of what we do corporately or as a group. But certainly, when we just boil it all down, you have a relationship to the person that's next to you, and that person has a relationship to the person that's next to them, and we each have personal responsibilities to see that we edify or build each other up. But there's also some passages that clearly deal with the responsibility of a congregation in the sense that they talk about edification in the concept of what we do together and the activities that we share together. One passage, is, one passage that we're familiar with maybe in that realm is when Paul is writing to, the, writing to the church at Corinth and he's speaking about their use of spiritual gifts within the assembly, miraculous spiritual gifts. The fact that they had spiritual gifts that was supposed to be a benefit but was actually causing problems within the church and Paul says, as he discusses this, one principle that he places before them, he says that all things be done for edification. Now, have you ever heard that, that particular passage used for other things other than miraculous spiritual gifts? I have it many times in teaching and even used it that way, that what's presented here in the context of the use of a spiritual gift is applicable to us because Paul's using that terminology from the context of things that we do together. That that's why things need to be done to to edifying one another. Why edification needs to be the purpose and the goal even of spiritual gifts because this is why we are together is to build each other up. So there's a sense in which, as Paul says this, that he's telling us that the church could gauge its mission on the basis of this single purpose is what we're doing edifying? Is what we're, you see, engaged in? Is it for the purpose of building each other up? If it's not, then it needs to be examined and maybe it needs to be excluded. And that's what Paul was saying about these gifts. That there were some individuals that maybe were promoting it, particularly if they had a gift of the tongue because it made them, you see, look maybe smarter than others or more, more spiritually endowed than others. But if a person couldn't understand what he was saying, then it was missing the point. It was not edifying. And we'll come back to that maybe in a few moments, but certainly that's a principle that's involved. Well, how does the Bible describe the process of edification? Well, the passage that that question leads me to is Ephesians chapter 4, the passage that Joe read for us just a few moments ago. Uh, I think about passages that I have uh, sort of uh, maybe expanded my view of. Uh, sections of scripture where I've changed not only the way that I thought about them, but I've able, been able to, uh, through, through continual study, to see more there than I did before. And this, this particular section of, uh, of scripture by the Apostle Paul is one of those that certainly fits that list for me. Paul is talking about unity in the first part of, these, of this text. He's talking about how the church is to be unified and to work together. He's also telling us, I think, how in the Ephesian brethren, how the church is to accomplish its purposes, the way that God has made possible for a church to get done what it's supposed to get done. And what he tells us here is that God has provided certain gifts or grace. In verse, read with me this passage again, chapter 4, verse 7. But each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. 
And then he goes on down in verse 11. It says, He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, of the, uh, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now what Paul then, I think, is describing here, as I mentioned, is that God's provided for the church to be able to do what God would give it to do by the giving of gifts. He calls it grace that's been distributed. And this grace is not in the form of something mysterious or mystical. It's come in the form of individuals who are given responsibility concerning the Word of God and how their functions within the church actually are gifts for the church. And so those those, those gifts are the apostles and the prophets. The evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Individuals that would, at different levels and in different ways, impart truth unto the, unto the congregation is the gifts that God has provided. Well, what's the purpose of these gifts? Well, he says here that they are for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, in the past, I've seen this and maybe taught it that way as well, and others maybe as well see it as three prepositional phrases that are equal in their weight within the Scriptures, and they identify three distinct works of the church, edification, benevolence, and evangelism. There's a sense in which maybe we would be able to derive that even from the text, and certainly from other places, that, that is the, those are the works that are associated with the church. But what I think is presented here in the text in terms of the, the actual text itself is that you have one overriding activity that provides for two other activities. And that's borne out of the prepositional phrase, the first prepositional phrase. All three of them in the King James and New King James Version are translated by the word for. But in the original language, they are different words. The first one is different than the second, than the second and third. That the first preposition means unto something. It's the word pros, which means unto a purpose. Uh, and what is really being presented here is that you have a... The first propositional phrase that is modified by the next two. So what's the purpose of the gifts? It's for the equipping of the saints. Well, why are the saints equipped? To do the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ. And that's really the best understanding of how to put that particular passage together. That the first prepositional phrase is why the gifts are given or what they're going to accomplish is that they're going to equip the saints. The New International Version maybe bears this out. It says... The gifts are given to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So one relies upon another. One, you see, not only precedes another, but absolutely essential to the other. If we're looking to what, how a congregation is edified, how it's built up, we cannot fail to look at this particular passage because it's telling us what must come first, what is prerequisite to the building up of a body of Christ. It is the equipping of the saints and for those saints to do works of ministry to do works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up now what we recognize in this passage right off is that Paul's not talking about some special group of individuals he's not talking about in terms of the, of, what, of accomplishing the purpose he's not saying that the apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and the leaders of the church that they are the ones who equip Uh, they're the ones who build up the body of Christ. What he's saying is that the building up of the body of Christ is an activity of everyone. And he says that later on when he says that by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share. So that's where Paul goes in this and that's what the apostles were revealing to the church. The church needs to be built up. Whose responsibility is that? It's every part 
who's doing every share, that's doing its share that every individual member is involved in the building up of the body of Christ. Now, before they can build up the body of Christ, each one of those individual members needs to be equipped to do it. And the word equipped here is the aspect here of that which is furnished or that which is completely brought to a, to a sense of perfection. Uh, that's again the, the the word here is interesting in the sense that it's often it, it is used, it was used in the original language to talk about the setting of a bone. Uh, so you break a bone, you go to the doctor. At least sometimes, Kenny, you when you go to the doctor, he, he wants to set the bone. He'll he'll fix, put it back where it was. Sometimes they just tell you, "I ah, will wrap it up. Nothing we can do." But sometimes they'll have to set the bone and put it back in its place. And that was the that was the terminology in the Greek language that this word conveyed. The idea of making something complete again, putting it in a position, you see, where it could do what it was supposed to do. And so the idea of equipping here is the idea of completely furnishing. New King James uses that terminology and, uh, and uses the word perfecting of the saints. It doesn't mean that he makes the saints without fault, but it means that the, the, these particular gifts make the saints so that they can be complete thoroughly furnished unto every good work is how Paul expresses it using that certain terminology in First Timothy chapter 3. In Hebrews chapter 13, in the last part of the writer of Hebrews book, he, in his closing prayer, he uses that very same word. He says, Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. So there again is the aspect of making us ready to do a job. Now, what that would indicate unto me is that these servants then are to are called upon to fill in the gaps and provide what is spiritually missing in the lives of other saints so that those saints can go about to do a work. And so it's a call for a unity. In order for that to take place, those servants have to think about and be considerate about and they have to act act towards those other Christians that you see they're going to perfect or complete. And those other Christians have to be willing to accept what will build them up, to receive it in such a way that they would be what they ought to be. And I believe that's why this particular context, this particular context is perfect for what Paul says here, because he's talking about unity and about them being one. And part of the element of becoming one is, you see, edifying and building up the body so that it could be a single structure. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, the Apostle Paul again uses that same terminology when he says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but you be made complete, or the word there also is the word for equipped, that you may be equipped in the same mind and in the same judgment. So we talk about building up the body of Christ. We're talking about a process that actually creates unity within God's people. Well, look closer at the passage and think, well, what are they equipped to do? Well, he says here, for the work of ministry. The word ministry has been, I think, many times wrongly defined in religion. It's come to signify sometimes uh, a single individual. So you have uh, the minister of a congregation, or it's used as a religious title. Never used that way in the New Testament. The New Testament word is uh, diakonos, and it means you see a servant. Sometimes it's used to describe someone who has a special uh, a service to, to, to execute, such as the deacon. And that very terminology is sometimes translated, the very word is sometimes translated by the word deacon. But more often, that particular word simply means someone who serves another. And the Christian is described as a servant. And it's the activity of service 
That's the avenue by which God, you see, does everything within His kingdom. Everything that's accomplished in the kingdom of God is accomplished through one person serving another. Even our redemption is accomplished by Jesus serving us. And that was Jesus appointed washing the disciples' feet and telling them such as He did in Mark chapter 10, that whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. Let him be like me. So that's how spiritual activity, you see, uh, becomes effective. And so this work includes our mutual responsibility to serve each other, both physically and spiritually. And so we're called to do that. Hebrews chapter 10, a passage we many times go to to talk about the importance of the assembly. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much more as you see the day approaching. Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says we should encourage one another and build one another up just as you also are doing, he told the Thessalonian brethren. So they are to build one another up through serving each other and, uh, he, and the, what that will provide for them in the edifying of the body of Christ, you see, uh, is this uh, process of, put, of uh, strengthening. Again, what we have to recognize in all of this as we, I think, put these thoughts together is that in the context of Ephesians 4 and in every place else this subject is addressed that it is the direct result of teaching. The building up takes place inwardly in the body of Christ by Christians becoming spiritually stronger in their own lives. Outwardly when individuals are taught the word of God and they you see and sinners come to God and they are converted to Christ and added to the church. So growth can be viewed in both ways and building up takes place. But it's always relying upon whether or not the truth is being taught, whether or not there is, you see, substantial revelation being made known. It has to do with teaching. And so God's intention is that the church be committed to this aspect of teaching. Uh, The ultimate goal is stated in verse 13. Until we all reach the unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. Again, I'll have you notice that the unity you see is not in feelings, but rather in the faith. And what we ultimately, you see, uh, gain by this process of edification is a greater knowledge of the Son of God. And we become mature to the point that we are of the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We become like Jesus. So we all strive to be like Jesus every day. And as we accomplish that process, however slow and arduous it might be, or however you see in small ways it might be accomplished, as we accomplish that process, that's what edification is. That's what it's all about. Now, looking at everything that we've said so far, we recognize that Christians are to be built up in the faith and in and that it begins through the words of the apostles and prophets and the foundational truth that God has revealed But not only has God provided the apostles and prophets foundational truth, but he's also provided for the church individuals who would make known that to instruct and mentor and to encourage other individuals, the shepherds and the preachers and the teachers who would make known the word of God. And that as the word of God was made known, those you see who were being taught would be equipped to go out and serve one another. And in serving one another, they would build the church up. Now let's suggest to you that if any part of that is missing, the whole process, you see, is sabotage. The whole process is not going to take place. And that's why Paul is laying it out for us the way that he is, so that both you and I and Ephesian brethren could know, this is what it's all about. This is what it looks like. Well, how is it that we can edify each other in making application? Well, real quickly, I want to present, I think, what, what I'm going to consider as being four tools for edification. 
four tools that are absolutely essential to a church being built up and us and being able to accomplish the purpose. One is the assembly. It's not arbitrary that God would cause his, would tell his people to gather together. Sometimes there's a there's a think, religious thinking that becomes popular from time to time, and you see that disparages the assembly. It says Christians can, uh, you know, that I don't have to go to a building to be a Christian. I don't have to be a part of a group. Uh, my relationship is personal with God. I can go out and God and I can have a relationship without being apart. And part of that is because of, uh, I think, uh, maybe in a right in a rightful way, a disdain for what organized religion has become in society. People turn away from organized religion, therefore they throw out the aspect of the, 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 the idea of an assembly where a church gathers together. But the New Testament is pretty clear about the, not only the aspect that Christians ought to assemble, Hebrew chapter 10, but more to the point that the assembly is an integral part of, of God's plan for the building up of God's people. That we do things together not only to worship God and praise God, as essential and as important that is, but also on a horizontal level we do these things together so that we can provoke one another unto love and good works. And Paul instructed all the things that Christians do in their assembly. The passage we read earlier, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Everything they did in their assembly was to be done unto edifying for the purpose of building up. What does that mean? That means the sermons, the class instruction, the prayers, the songs, the taking of the Lord's Supper, the collections that are done. All of this is to be done in ways that will facilitate the edification of all those who are present. That that's part of the purpose of it. If the message is incomprehensible, or if the message is missing, if there is no teaching involved, if it in no way relates to this aspect of what God has revealed, then it's really not edification at all. How can Christians be edified if they can't understand what's being said? And how can Christians be edified if they're not in an assembly where it's being said, being taught? That places a heavy weight upon us, upon particularly, I think, those who lead and participate in services. Those individuals who are going to be engaged in the process itself. Am I picking out songs, just the ones that I like, because I like to sing these, because they have a peppy tune, or I'm trying to really teach someone and try to facilitate the aspect of edification? When I pray, am I simply trying to fill in some words to try to make sure I say uh, the th- all, all the things that are on the list? Or maybe just thinking stuff up in the spur of the moment so I can appear to others to be spiritual? Or am I really striving to pray because I want other individuals to be encouraged by what I said as I pray for them, as I take their petitions before God? We come to take the Lord's Supper. Are we truly attempting to capture the importance of the moment and to make it a memorial so that other individuals will be strengthened up? Or are we simply there to rehearse some familiar passages and to say what's been said before? A sermon is not a 30-minute time filler so that we can come up with an hour of service somewhere. A sermon or a lesson, you see, is designed to teach. It's not entertainment. It's not a comedy act. It's not an improvisation. It's not a public speaking event. It is edification. And if it's not that, then it shouldn't be there in the assembly. So that, import, that, that, that presents to us the importance of the aspect of our communal activity together and the words that are spoken, the things that are done while we're together. I don't know that God could present to us a more important activity horizontally considering ourselves together than to say that this is to be done to build another person up. Well, so the assembly is important. Our, God's word is important. And we mentioned this before. 
Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6, Paul says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. He says you need to be built up in Christ, you need to be established in the faith as you've been taught. The things that have presented to you are the very elements by which you will be built up. When Paul spoke to the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, he told them there that it would be through the word of God's grace that they would be built up and strengthened, even in the context of those who would come and try to destroy the flock. So if we're not learning the words that God's presented, if we're not focused on what God has actually revealed to us in the word of God, then we're going to be missing the whole process of edification. And certainly the more we know about God, the more we know about what God has done for us and His love for us, the more that can, you see, affect our lives and strengthen us to be His servants. And the more it can prepare us for whatever storm might come. Because what God has presented to us is His building code. And, our, and the church needs to be built to those standards. And then there is also our words. You know, edification, building up, takes place not only through what God says, but certainly uh, when it comes right down to it, it can certainly take place through what we say. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, Paul said, Let no corrupt speech proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. So Paul's saying, be careful what you say. And when you're, going, when you're getting ready to say it, ask yourself, is it going to build people up or is it going to tear it down? And so we recognize that this charge not only presents to us, is not only presented to us collectively, but also individually. That our words can tear down rather than build up. They can destroy rather than create a good environment. That doesn't mean we can't speak negatively. It doesn't mean we, are, we can never rebuke someone for their sins. We can't talk about sin or we can't, we can't condemn what's taking place in people's lives. I would suggest to you just the opposite of that would be true in many cases. That the only avenue to true edification and building up is to rebuke sin. That nothing's going to get better and nothing's going to be built. People are not going to be built up spiritually if we ignore the importance of being faithful to God and call individuals to true obedience. But when we engage in backbiting, hypercriticalness, and gossiping, whispering, when we talk about individuals not to build them up but simply to tear them down, then that process is reversed. So we have to be careful that we take advantage of the opportunities to build up and we say those words that will build things up. Another element is our, love, is our works of love for each other. And this comes down to the practical element of what, whether or not we do anything to help other individuals. If we're truly interested in edification and the church being strengthened and, and ourselves being strengthened as well, then we have to see the place of love. Paul is pretty clear about the effects of love in 1 Corinthians he tells us there that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. You go to first to chapter 13, and he talks about love in the context of, of adversity. And over and over again, he would emphasize to us that love is, the, is that element that really gets things done, so to speak. You can clang on the cymbals, and you can make noise. You can even, you see, exercise spiritual gifts. But if it doesn't have love, it's not going to be effective. But what does that mean? I think in the practical sense, one thing it means is that we've got to quit talking about love and start exercising love towards one another. We have to sacrifice ourselves for one another. We have to be willing to do things for one another. And we have to be willing to uphold the weak, particularly if we're stronger, so that ultimately individuals will see that we care and see ultimately how God would react and Jesus would react to individuals in that circumstance. We have the opportunity to show others the love of God. And when we do that, we lay the groundwork for building up the church. Now, 
Another thing I think I want to consider here in this regard, and that is, what is not edification? There's a disconnect in society today and in religious circles as well between what the Bible defines and what we've just discussed as edification and what we see passed off as edification in many churches today. Many times people will talk about being edified. That was really uplifting to me. And what they're talking about is the emotional response they have to what takes place. That many times people will speak of an intensely emotional or sensory experience and they'll talk about it in the context that that was really edifying, that really was uplifting to me, that really encouraged me. Whether or not they were encouraged to do anything or to ultimately, you see, to think a different way, they would have to answer for themselves. But I think we have to be careful here and recognize that emotion itself does not define edification. And though emotion is essential to proper worship, and I believe essential to proper edification is to be emotional about what we talk about. We just talk about the Lord's Supper and how sometimes we can approach that ritualistically to the point that it does, it's not edifying at all. But emotion itself is essential to proper worship and edification, but there's nothing in emotion itself that provides the building blocks of spirituality. It's the fruit of spirituality, but not the substance of it. The substance of spirituality is truth. The substance of spirituality, you see, is this aspect of whether or not I'm learning anything and putting anything into my heart about what God has revealed to me. If there's no compelling moral instruction grounded in Scripture, then there's probably no strength that's going to come to me as a result of participating in that. And that's why recreational activities and things that have to do with entertainment have no value in the assembly. Not only because God has not authorized them, but because in terms of the principle, everything must be done to edification. They're useless along those lines. Somewhere along the line, I have to get back to the idea that I've got to learn something about God and draw closer to God through truth itself, or I'm not being built up in the church. And so we have to know what edification is not. Well, what does edification look like? As we close here, let me suggest an analogy as I think uh, is meaningful to me. The Gothic arch was a very popular structure in medieval architecture. Uh, there are different types of arches and do some research on that. I don't understand all of that. I'm not an architect. But the way, this, the, way the arch works is fascinating to me. The primary advantage of the arch was its strength and stability. And the development of architecture and building. When individuals figured this out, and they did it a long time ago, it provided the opportunity for them to build much taller and much more substantial structures than had been built before. The strength of the arch is derived from the fact that each stone in the arch leaned on the one beside it. So that this stone stayed in its place because there was another stone that leaned upon it. And that stone stayed in place because there was another stone leaning upon it. And there was that keystone in the middle that ultimately, you see, the leaning went both ways. So the arch itself, you see, became absolutely fundamental to creating very stable, very strong structures. And that's the very element of the system of mutual support. And I find that fascinating not only because of its importance to architectural design because that's precisely what edification is. It is a system of mutual support. 
It is a system where not one person holds all the weight, or not one person is more important than the other person, but where every individual is concerned about the other individual and takes the responsibility to that individual very seriously. It enables this aspect of things to be built that are very strong and that are very stable. And that is edification. It is a symbol, in many ways, of what God has done for us within the gospel itself. The gospel itself is a unity where one principle and one thing that God has done leans upon another. And it's not an isolation, one individual over another, or even hierarchy of another. That's why the principle that Jesus taught His disciples was so important. Who's going to be greatest in the kingdom? Who gets the top spot? Can I be on this side? Can I be on that side? And what Jesus told them, no, you're going to all lean upon one another. You're going to all be equal, and you're going to press upon one another and support one another, because that's the nature of the kingdom of God. So that surprised me then that when God when God get, get around to giving instructions on how local congregations are to build themselves up, He would tell us, "No, you're going to edify each other. You're going to build each other up, and you're going to strengthen one another through that very process." We need each other. We need each other in terms of our personal lives, and we need each other in terms of the spiritual mission that God has given us to do. And the reason I thought that this lesson might uh, that God might have been talking to me about this. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean by that. In terms of the lesson, is that uh, uh, the strength I got this morning because I knew that you guys were holding me up <laughs> uh, was pretty special. I don't know that I could have gotten that kind of support. And I thought about uh, what God did for me this morning as He showed me a dry fleece on a wet ground. <laughs> and if you were in Bible class, maybe you know what that means. Are you afraid, David? Here's dry fleece on a wet ground. These people are praying for you. You don't need to be afraid. I'm with you. Amen. So that that uh, that's meaningful to me. And I, and I when I look at this aspect of edification, I recognize that God's doing that over and over and over again in all the congregations around the world. These things, these people are not held together by some uh, some organizational structure or by some dominant you see personality. They're held together because they care for one another, and that's what. Luke said in Acts chapter 2, when the church first began, they had all things in common. And one person didn't have a need that another person wasn't concerned about. And they had, you see, a good accord with all the other people around about because they were committed to God. They devoted themselves. The apostle doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and in prayer. And that's what we need to be involved in too. Uh, if you're not a Christian, we want to invite you to be a child of God even today. Even tonight, there's opportunity for you to obey God. There's even facilities here where you could be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. There's no, there's no greater organization, structure, a body you can be in than the body of Jesus Christ. So we invite you to do that. Can we help you in any way? Let's stand and sing.